This fall, the Guggenheim Museum presents Turn It On, China on Film 2000 through 2017, a 10-week documentary film festival curated by Ai Weiwei and Wang Fen. Screenings on Fridays and Saturdays through December 16th. Learn more at guggenheim.org slash turnitonline. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. In 1974, Toby Hooper released a film that instantly became notorious among horror fans and censors. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. While the Texas Chainsaw Massacre spawned many imitators and a few lawsuits, nothing truly lived up to the original. And, unfortunately, that's how many people see Hooper's career. In this episode, I was joined by... Ina Archer. I'm the Media Conservation and Digitization Assistant at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture and a contributor to Film Comment. Margaret Barton Fumo, longtime contributor to Film Comment. And Michael Koreski, I'm editorial director here at Film Society of Lincoln Center. In the hopes of dispelling that myth with a mini retrospective of his films, here's our conversation. Today we've all assembled this coven to discuss a filmmaker who holds a, a dear place in our sick little hearts. He passed away earlier this year. Of course, I'm talking about Toby Hooper. Unfortunately, we didn't we really haven't done anything sort of honoring his films. However, you know, they're among the most influential horror films of all time. But let's qualify that by talking about his first and uh, one of his greatest. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974, I believe. Mm -hmm. I'll just try to quickly go through the plot first. Um, <laughs> plot heavy film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a group of young people who are traveling through Texas in a van. And among them, Sally Hardesty and her brother, Franklin, who's confined to a wheelchair. They're traveling initially because they want to check on the grave of Sally and Franklin's grandfather because there's been grave robbings in that particular cemetery. Then they decide they want to check out their dilapidated homestead, and they pick up a hitchhiker on the way who is very, 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 very creepy. <laughs> <laughs> and he cuts himself and then cuts Franklin, so they kick him off the van they run out of gas, and then while they're visiting the homestead, two of the group break off, and they discover this home with the generator running, and they decide that they want to try to get some gas. But unfortunately, that home is inhabited by a family of freaky cannibals um, who kill them all off one by one until Sally is left as the final girl, mm. and that is... The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's really so much to talk about this film because yeah. it's it's a historical film, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, in that it 
influenced so many other directors within the scope of film history. But it also represents a certain time period very painfully, I think. Yeah. As represented by a director whose generation was deeply affected by the Vietnam War and tended to present the brutality and violence of that war on screen. Um, But also film historically, a lot of people consider it to be the first one of the one of the first slasher movies. And it definitely is one of the first to depict a certain type of unrelenting chase based uh, final girl style horror. But it wasn't one of the first to show slashing by any means, as we all know from Hitchcock and everything in between. But the film is really horrifying just from its opening sequence, which shows close-ups of decrepit human remains. And it's accompanied by the sound of a popping flashbulb, which is somehow terrifying in its own right. Mm -hmm. I mean, the sound design is just impeccable. And it ranges from like infuriating, kind of itchy, scratchy kind of sounds (laughs) up through ear-splitting screeches. And then the images while terrifying, are not explicit, really, on the whole, which is something that's hard to get your head around because it's such a gruesome, horrifying film. And as Hooper liked to talk about, he would often talk about the infamous meat hook scene in the film where the girl is impaled on a meat hook, but there's absolutely no blood or gore to be seen. And yet this is like one of the most memorable set pieces in the film. And I like how in the... um, Guardian's obituary of Hooper, they detailed how the British Board of Film Censors initially refused to give the film a certificate on the basis that it exemplified, quote, the pornography of terror. Um, what a the, beautiful pull quote. Isn't it? <laughs> the pornography, title of an upcoming book. Yes, the pornography of terror. But it relented many, many years later on the basis that it had, and I think the quote there is just very little visible violence. Mm -hmm. And that I think is part of the reason why the film still holds up today. It is still horrifying 40 years later because of this sort of philosophy of less is more type of filmmaking. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the kind of movie that um, no matter who you show it to at any point ever, people are completely blown away. It is an experience of a film, and I don't think that there's any other slasher movie that quite has that kind of visceral, almost action-packed feverishness. And I think that when people talk about Toby Hooper, they don't often put him on the same level as some of these other horror auteurs that we talk about, which is one of the reasons that I'm really excited to talk, that we're talking about him today and mm-hmm. giving him his credit because regardless of the fact that he doesn't have the most consistent oeuvre as like a John Carpenter or a Wes Craven, some of you know, these other horror auteurs we can point to, in The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, if you just look at that film, he did something that no one else did before or after, I would argue. It's just the most soul-rattling, yeah. freakishly frightening movie. And he deserves all the credit in the world, even if he did nothing after. And we're going to say that he did really good films after. But even if he did nothing after, this would put him in the pantheon. Absolutely. And I think just and this is something that I think you can see through all the films that we're going to talk about. But just the utterly assaultive, imaginative way he frames things and moves the camera. It's unlike a lot of slasher films. You never get the POV 
of Leatherface, right? Mm. The camera will like a 180 flip with a low angle. It's like very confident in the way that it knows it's going to like just completely disorient you and sort of surprise you. I have to say, I hadn't rewatched this since I was in high school and it like scared the hell out of me then. And watching it now, again, just like blown away by the power of that filmmaking and just how tight everything in that film is. And it really, it is truly impressive. Yeah. One of the reasons why it doesn't have as much violence as you think it has or doesn't need to have the violence is because it's so unimaginable. Like the things that you see in that it's movie so gruesome. is on, they're unimaginable. Yeah. Like being hung on a meat hook, being right. chased around what? by a man in a flesh mask with a chainsaw. <laughs> These are unimaginable things. So this, you don't have to push it any further. Exactly. It's about as far as it can go. Also, the movie is really funny and yes, I don't yeah. think mm-hmm. that any other slasher movie that's considered as um, seminal as this mm-hmm. has as much black humor. Yeah. Grandpa. I mean, the family. The, I mean, family. there's this brilliant look at this this decrepit family unit. It's just, it's, it's, it's I mean, it's a very political statement. Right? Oh, yeah. To end up in a house with this kind of like rotting. Patriarchy. You know, uh, patriarchal. Very, yeah, exactly. Um, aspirational family, actually, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, they're like, they're kind of bougie. They want to create their own crafts and they, they want to, you know, their use. Own crafts. They want they, they have, well, we didn't talk about the yeah. amazing crafts. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I mean, they, crafts, yes. they could have like a tourist mm-hmm. shop. Exactly. No, and I mean, like, that's what's crazy about it. It's like, you know, I'm not going to say that I'm a Texas expert. I'm not going to, you know, like, New York City? What? No. But I have to say, the way that he uses the geography of Texas, the spaces of Texas, like, you know, these wide open spaces that are so, the landscape shots in this are so beautiful. I think you can see this throughout his filmography. Just the nimble way he can go through a house. And just like how there's no sort of cheating. He's not like removing walls to sort of get these shots. You understand where everything is. And it's like, no one else really does that, I think. And it's very impressive. That's a great point. I also, there are two shots that I think of first when I think of this film. And one is, I guess, a sort of unassuming one. But it's this really great gliding low angle of her getting off of the the swing. swing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then it kind of dives under the swing and follows her up to the house as a tr- it's a tracking mm-hmm. shot. It's so beautiful and it's so eerie at the same time. Exactly. Um, and it does give you a sense of her space where she is going in. And then soon enough when Leatherface first comes out of the um, the kind of back hall. The sl- mm-hmm. silver then, sliding and door. And then slams the, the silver, like you would see in like a butcher <sighs> shop exactly. or a, at a abattoir and we needed a highfalutin word for where Leatherface hides out it's an abattoir please he's a, he's a fancy boy yeah, he is. Do you wear the tuxedo old, yeah he's like a good old boy like he could have been just like a big tall fat guy who played on a football team but no his powers his physical prowess has been harnessed for these intricate handicrafts <laughs> <laughs> that he's inherited he's been passed down through his you know the patrilineal line but Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> is there much I don't know I feel like we could keep talking about this yeah. forever yeah I wanted I think we could talk the whole time about yes. it and I really the um, fairy tale like feeling of the film and Absolutely. that kind of final chase scenes where it's, it's so sort of funny and crazy and screaming but that he's moving you know they're moving through that grassy area or not grassy but forest like area between the, the two houses that's exhilarating and with a little stream of smoke coming out of the the chainsaw and the and the sound it's really 
sort of takes you into another, you know, outside of just the the horror, but a nightmare, but kind of a exhilarating nightmare. Absolutely. And I think it's, it is, and I, I'm glad you bring up this fairy tale element because the opening of the story is with this narration, right? It is, it is like a fail, fable, like long, long ago, there was this girl and her invalid brother and they were cut to pieces, <laughs> right? But then there's also the radio and these mm-hmm. other things um, to sort of sprinkle throughout that, and even just like when they're talking about like, doing like the I Ching stuff, Mm -hmm. like that's very Mm -hmm. bad 70s hippie cliche, but it's also like this weird sort of mysticism and that, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that the family is elevated to like this mystical force is like, yeah, it is totally like a fucked up weird Ed Gein fairy tale. (laughs) Love it. Love it. I'll turn now to his follow-up, which was Eaten Alive. It's a title shared by an Umberto Lenzi film, which another recently deceased uh, horror auteur from Italy. But Eaten Alive is so strange. I had never seen it before. You know, it's the same co-writer and using the same approach as Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's based on a actual serial killer, this guy who, Ed Ball in Texas, who would feed women to alligators. Uh, He had like an alligator farm. (laughs) And he would also throw puppies and kittens in there and think it was really funny. Yeah, he's a super gross dude. I like how you didn't go ooh to the women. (laughs) You can feed people all you want. People are evil. Animals are perpetual innocence. Anyway, but it's shot on a soundstage and it's like this guy who owns this old hotel who's crazy and Robert England is in it as Buck, this young, young Buck, young, young. very young. No, he has like his shirt off in it. It's so weird. If people have like problems with Freddy Krueger, take a moment before you watch this film because it's going to really fuck you up if you think you put that one to bed. Um, and then and then there's also William Finley who is in Phantom of the Paradise. Love him. Uh, and he and it's like I'm going to see this. So like I said, it's shot on a soundstage and it looks like Corel. I swear this sounds insane, <laughs> but it's true because it's like this. Are there big phalluses everywhere as well? Um, well, he has a scythe. So there are like these old school farming implements that he's constantly killing the, the, the hotelier is killing people with. And like the first victim he kills, she like as an, she escapes this uh, very bad um, whorehouse that's down the road. She looks almost exactly like Hanisha Gila. It's very bizarre. (laughs) And it's always, you know, the outside of the hotel, like, you know, when new guests come in, it's always like at the most orangey, red, brightest part of sundown. Just so beautiful. And uh, these people going into the hotel, the um, William Finley character is uh, just like this totally deranged father. It's again, in like a very fast bindering coked up Chinese roulette sort of way where he's just like making fists at his wife and he's like he's like ready to like strangle her already and then uh he gets eaten by an alligator or a crocodile excuse me (laughs) so um it's just like and and also what I really appreciate you know there's all this interpersonal drama on the surface there's this amazing use of like diegetic music of like these creaky country songs as you know either covering up horror you know, like the sounds of people being tortured or just sort of like adding to the sense of unease. But then also he shows like how the townspeople in this town are just as grotesque and horrible as this hotel owner who's just sort of alone and ranting to himself. And you're like, 
I can almost understand how he got to that point if these are the people that he's surrounded <laughs> with. And yeah, it's just, uh, I know Marty Rustam, who was like a producer or co-producer on this, took over some parts of the shooting. Um, I watched a very bad Amazon streaming video copy of this instead of the nice Arrow video version, which has like commentary and everything. But it is just like, it's not as strong as Texas Chainsaw, but it's very, it has the same strengths. And again, just like these crazy low angles and just like going through the hotel in ways that you just don't expect. And um, it's like, it's a very silly premise, right? It's just like a guy feeding things to a, a crocodile or an alligator or whatever but it, it, it gets a job done it's uh, kind of kind of great so i think he told people it was a crocodile but it was really an alligator or something like that, that yes because yeah. he's like it has like that same sort of jaws premise where he's like some people say that crocodiles never die blah 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 <laughs> and, you know this one's from the nile and it's special and it's like no dude you're crazy but so, anyway. so as per the title does does it actually eat them alive or are they killed yes. and then fed no, they get like, he like stabs them with a scythe or, you know, smashes their head in or, you know, like there's like a dog that accidentally gets chomped and stuff. It gets, it sort of gets all this, but yes, things are eaten alive as promised. I'm there. <laughs> well, did it really feel like a progression from Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Like no. stylistically? <laughs> no, no. Unfortunately, it was kind of a, it was like three steps back maybe, but it's still oh. like, it has its own charms. And again, it's. He was shooting on a soundstage. You almost like when people are yelling, you can hear the echo, <laughs> which like again, like, very strange. But I know that he left the project at some point, and so it's not as I feel like if he had seen the whole thing through, he was trying to do like an, a Los Angeles noir film mm -hmm. instead, which is why he went to L.A. and they made him do this weird. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, used the scenery of Texas so well, the natural spaces of Texas so well. And this is just recreating all of that on a soundstage. And it's like, why? Hmm. But, you know, say la vie. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I'm not going to complain. I watched Eaten Alive. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, maybe we can now go to Salem's lot. Yes. Um, so... The next movie he made was, or the next movie that was finished, I know he had a couple unfinished, or yeah. one maybe unfinished project in between. But in 1979, he directed Salem's Lot for television, though it was produced by Warner Brothers, so it has very high production values. This is based on Stephen King's best-selling novel, which was his second novel after Carrie. Um, and this is also the second movie version of a Stephen King book after Carrie. They kind of went in order for a while. Mm -hmm. So this, this, Salem's Lot was written in between Carrie and The Shining. And The Shining would be one year later as a movie, as, as we all know. <laughs> um, Salem's Lot is actually really great. Um, I, yes. I'm just going to kind of take a step back and say that. I, I was, I watched it as a kid. I was, I was kind of a Stephen King obsessive as cherubic American kids are. <laughs> um, and so I had like, I had a video cassette of it, but I, but there was like a theatrical cut they did later. It was actually, it was made as a miniseries. It was a two part miniseries. When you take the commercials out, it's only a little over three hours. Um, but then they also did like a theatrical 112 minute cut, which mm. is actually the thing that I probably watched the most as a kid, which is very truncated as you can imagine. And it really needs the full experience, the full miniseries. It feels much more novelistic and incorporates lots of characters. But most importantly, it's just you can't believe this was on television. And this is this absolutely anyone of a certain age <laughs> who was aware uh, who was around then knows that this was along with Trilogy of Terror, which we talked yeah. about on a previous <laughs> 
podcast or maybe Devil Dog Hound of Hell, which scared me a lot when I was a kid, <laughs> or The Night Stalker. There were a lot of scary television things in the 70s, so this wasn't so out of the ordinary. But this was a particularly scary thing that traumatized you know, generations of kids or maybe this particular generation of kids. And the personal story in my, in my family was that my mom, my dad was a traveling salesman, so he was away, like always way two weeks out of every month. And um, so my mom was watching Salem's Lot by herself one night and she was really into it and she was folding laundry and then the face <laughs> appears. And if anyone has seen this, they know what I'm talking about. There's a scene and it's very far into the film, mm-hmm. very far into the miniseries, where this main character, uh, this main vampire named Mr. Barlow he finally appears. He pops out of the dark. You have no warning. You haven't mm-hmm. seen, and there's been no one's, people have talked about the character throughout. Like there's mm-hmm. Mr. Barlow's coming. Oh, we're waiting for Mr. Barlow to arrive because James Mason is this antique dealer who comes to this <laughs> small main town. And of course it's James Mason. So everything he says is absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> and you just hang on his every word. But it's also great because there's like a kind of weird queer reading where this like old oh. antique dealer is waiting for his partner, Mr. Barlow, Barlow. to arrive. No, and, I totally. and he keeps telling everybody when he arrives, you're going to love him and he's going to love you i know that, so, i don't think there's like a weird queer reading it's just like very on the surface well in me. the book so in the so in the book yes uh, mr barlow is a as a dracula figure he's a much more he's a smooth talking uh appealing seductive figure mm-hmm. toby hooper just was just like nope He's going to be an ancient beast. Nosferatu. He's going, and he was so, so they based the makeup on Nosferatu. um, And except that it's blue. It's like this completely blue. He has these weird little rabbit fangs. He has this like, apparently the actor whose name is Reggie Nalder. He, he bore a skull cap that, so it looked like almost like parts of veins and skull were coming out of his head. Um, His, he had these like glowing orange eyes. I mean, he is without a doubt, one of the scariest looking monsters I've ever seen in a movie. So for that to just appear out of the dark with no warning. So and so to get back to the story, as soon as the face appeared, my mom screamed, lunged for the television, turned it off, and never saw the rest of it. Oh. So so to this day, I always mention Salem's Law, and she says, oh my God, I don't know how it ended, and I never want to know. And what's interesting is this, he, he again, he appears very far into the narrative. So there's there are all these different stories going on, all these different characters. It, and just in terms of Toby Hooper's direction of this, it's very, I would say this is like the M.R. James to the other Lovecrafts mm-hmm. in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, you know, known for its crazy frenetic energy. And it sounds like Eaten Alive maintains some of that. Yes. And, and then yes. he has a lot of crazy balls to the walls movie later on, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. But Salem's Lot is just this classic gothic horror film. And it's so beautifully composed. Mm-hmm. And like you say, this sense of space, this, you always know where you are in the town. You know, you know where you are in the houses. Um, everything well, the is final just, a, and is the f- so amazing. Yeah. Like it's just this beautiful, like the house where the, uh, Mr. Barlow lives or it's transported. It's just this amazing green fantasia of just like weird taxidermy dust mm-hmm. um things you can get tied to <laughs> how about how about that wall of antlers oh my god somebody that somebody meets a sticky end on <laughs> yes um it's really just, and of course, the other major set piece everyone talks about, which is great, is where is when there's a child who has been turned into a vampire, and he keeps visiting his brother oh, outside gosh. the window and asking to be let in. And the image of this child with these eyes and fangs floating in the air, and apparently they put the kid on an actual boom, 
So there's no, there are no wires. So Toby Beaver said, I, you, you, people know there are wires. That mm-hmm. I don't want it to look like Peter Pan. I want it to look like something kind of odd. Yeah. And so like the effect is still shocking to this day. Yeah. All the vampire effects are very scary in it. And I just was so struck watching again how methodically composed and beautifully done it is. I think that maybe because it's television, some people don't always think of it in the same breath as other Toby Hooper films, which right. doesn't really make any sense because, um, again, it just shows his strengths so well. Yeah, I really enjoyed watching it. And also, I, to shout out to the cast a little bit, the the main character, who I haven't mentioned because he's actually kind of boring, mm-hmm. but um, the main, uh, he's a novelist turned vampire hunter. Okay, <laughs> Stephen King. Um, played by David Soul of <laughs> Starsky and Hutch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, like, the, I love the fact, though, that you're watching this film with these dated people and this, these dated clothes and this dated... It's so evocative and it's mm-hmm. so beautiful. And Bonnie Bedelia is oh, yeah. wonderful as the love interest who gets oh, to yeah. have her own little vampire narrative. Mm-hmm. I love Bonnie Bedelia. Yeah. And I think what's great about it is that it really preserves sort of like what makes Stephen King great, which is just this focus on character and a setting. Yes. It was upsetting for me to see like the kid vampire mm-hmm. at the window. And it's like, I can't imagine they just let this on TV <laughs> 40 years ago. That seems very irresponsible. <laughs> Apparently it was. Okay. But I mean, to, to, and to talk about, you know, Stephen King is obviously having like a huge renaissance this exactly, year. Yeah. It is a really good comparison to something like it, which for whatever... It has some attributes. Mm-hmm. Um, it was obviously a hit for a reason. It's appealing and it has some good jump scares, but it doesn't go into the characters as much no. as the book did and as much as something like Salem's Lot or Carrie or The Shining uh, film versions do. Or, uh, he's, or even the Ultimately, he's making movies about people. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, making movies about exactly like it's actually similar to it in the way that it's about a small town exactly. being infested by this kind of sickness or disease, this evil sickness, mm-hmm. um, which and it, but it's about like all of the people's foibles and problems and kind of how they don't small town mentality. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that comes across well in the miniseries, I think. Yeah. And it has Fred Willard. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Fred Willard. <laughs> yes. With a, and a really scary scene where the where the rifle mm. being put to his face. Do you, do you remember the Fred Willard Yes, scene? of course. Because really he was having a, he was a fooling around with that Filter. fat guy's wife. <laughs> Jokes George, on him. George DeZunda. Yeah. From Basic Instinct. Yes, from Basic, Hoss from Basic Instinct. Yeah, he wouldn't put up with that shit. Kick him out. Give him to a vampire. Anyway. There's always that thing where horror is able to bring back careers of people who have kind of, you know, slipped. I'm thinking of, you know, watching Betty Davis or, Joan Crawford and those stars mm-hmm. who get their kind of a little bit of a boost and the same thing kind of happening in a television circumstance where, you know, Fred Willard gets to <laughs> exercise his, his skills. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, his, yeah. His skills as like the town stud or something. But I think that's almost like a great commentary. Where it's like, yeah, that's the guy. For if you live in this town, that's your best like hotbed. <laughs> so a similar thing happens in Cujo. Exactly. Which, yeah. Another Stephen King film that I like a lot, actually, where where the, the, it's an adultery story ultimately mm-hmm. before it's a dog story, and um, this like she's sleeping with like the town stud, and he's just like, what? This guy? He's so unattractive. <laughs> that's where the true horror is. Exactly. <laughs> the horror of small town America, captured so well by Stephen King. This fall, the Guggenheim Museum presents Turn It On, China on Film 2000 through 2017, a film festival curated by Ai Weiwei and Wang Fan. 
This 10-week series presents independent documentaries by China's most daring artists and filmmakers, investigating the political, social, economic, and cultural conditions of contemporary China. Screenings on Fridays and Saturdays through December 16th. Learn more at guggenheim.org slash turnitON. Maybe now we can switch to... Let's talk about Funhouse. The Funhouse. The Funhouse. The Funhouse. Which is annoying to say over and over again, the Funhouse. <laughs> the Funhouse, yes. It has a super simple plot, even the, the simplest of them, I think. Two, uh, two couples of teenagers decide that they want to stay overnight in a Funhouse in a carnival for fun, which is just... <laughs> Fun, fun, fun. A horrible idea, but to each to each their own. Yes. yes. <laughs> they stay overnight in the fun house. They witness a murder committed by a uh, carnival barker's horribly disfigured son. And then they are caught having witnessed the murder, and then they have to fend for themselves in the fun house where they're picked off one by one until this girl, Amy, is the final girl. Mm. And that's the fun house, basically. Hooper. <laughs> <laughs> That's the fun house. <laughs> Hooper uh, initially agreed to direct the script because he was approached with the script because he was a big fan of um, Edmund Goulding's 1947 film Nightmare Alley starring Tyrone Power. Fantastic movie mm-hmm. about carnies and, uh, and fortune tellers. It's also a fantastic book, too, by mm-hmm. William Lindsay Gresham, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Hooper was a fan. Um, he was also just a fan in general of carny culture and gyp- their gypsy sort of lifestyle of their of the of of their devotees. Um, and you can see this; it's evident in the film, um, which has great production design, which includes a lot of artifacts from real carnivals, including these horrifying old uh, mechanical toys. <laughs> which are just terrifying on their own, which reminds me of one of the things actually that I like about Poltergeist, Mm. which is how it creates this fear of inanimate objects. Yes. You know, whether it's the old tree or the clown toy or the chairs, there are all these shots just of of things Mm -hmm. that are scary in and of themselves. And And TV static. TV static, yeah. Big terror, yeah. Just still or inanimate objects and whether or not that is a Spielbergism it's something that Hooper did in Funhouse even though the mechanical toys are moving obviously but they're not living and they're just so creepy you just all you have to do is put the camera on it and it's scary (laughs) so before this the whole plot that I summarize happens though there's about an hour worth worth of film that's really just carnival going and it's great. I mean, they're walking through the carnival. They go to the fun house. They go to the freak show. They go to the fortune teller. They ride the rides. It's really fantastic. And it's not until over an hour into the film that we get the first kill. Um, and then after that, Hooper really amps up the tension in a way that he was successful at in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think, too, which also has a very abrupt first kill. Mm-hmm. And followed by that shot that Michael was talking about, that that really beautiful, creepy shot from behind the girl as she gets up off the swing and, and, and walks toward the cannibal house. In Fun House, after we see the fortune teller murder, the first kid of the group, he's hung by a noose that just sort of comes out of nowhere and whooshes, his, <laughs> whooshes him up. 
up, up and away. <laughs> and after that, there's a funhouse um, car that starts coming towards the kids very slowly in the dark with a shadowy figure on it. And, of course, they freak out thinking that it's the murderer, so the inept jock of the group axes it in the head, and it turns out to be their dead friend. And Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then after that, Watch there's a... before you ax someone in the head. Yeah, right? Sure I mean, and then right after that, there's a really fantastic shot that's taken from on the car as it's moving of the the just sort of like shaking body with the axe sticking out of its head. So Hooper does this thing where he, after you see this the kill and you know basically now what he's capable of showing, there's an extra element of fear and he works to amp that up, I think, with like swift camera movement and creepy music, stark lighting. And so then from then on, it's just like a back and forth of this type of, of horror. And then and, and that's really Funhouse. It's, it's a real slasher. I remember it being, I haven't seen it in a while. I remember it being very beautiful mm-hmm. in a strange way. Just something about the compositions. The being lighting, very, really. Very yeah. straightforward, but very, very beautifully done. And I'm thinking at a certain point that it kind of changed the way I was looking at horror movies from that era. Just because I was so used to extolling the virtues of a carpenter, say, you know, for their forthright stylization and their amazing, they're, they're like, quote unquote, amazing shots, right? Like the fog is a movie where like every shot is just so astonishing that you, you, you put it in a frame, as they say, which is <laughs> an annoying phrase. Um, whereas the Funhouse, like as with all of his things, he's just making, he's very workmanlike. He's making a film. But the compositions are really quite um, sophisticated mm-hmm. in the way that they're relating visual information. And I remember the Funhouse having like that kind of one after another. And I haven't seen it in a while. So yeah. I want to mm-hmm. watch it again. Yeah. And speaking of films from the 70s, I think an important thing to keep in mind is that, you know, we obviously live in weird, fucked up, turbulent times. But so were the 1970s, you know, not just for the um, Vietnam War, but like, People, you know, let's say didn't have super uh, faith in the presidency, maybe Mm -hmm. something people can relate to now. There are lots of weird things happening. And I think these films in their chaoticness are like kind of tapped into that in a way that, you know, oh, yeah, 70s thrillers, you know, these really paranoid films, blah, blah, blah. They so exemplify the era. It's like, well, so do these in their own way. And I feel like they're comforting at that time, you know, but and I don't. I'm still not feeling like there's an equivalent that happens now mm-hmm. where there's a real connection and it's, you know, uneasy times. And yet, um, you know, outside of something like Get Out, I think it doesn't reflect the times enough and doesn't comfort enough. Almost, exactly. You know, and I feel like that's really missing. Yeah. I will there's say. There's a rougher time, you know, rougher time and rougher movies, but then a greater kind of um, escape in some ways. Yeah. Well, Michael, you mentioned the new adaptation of it. I hope the because the second installment of that is going to be in Trump's America. And I hope they just go for it. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, I'm yeah. going to be like really pissed. <laughs> yeah, no, it, like, horror, horror films have fallen down on their on their duties if they have. Uh-huh. It, yeah. it, it was very um, precise in in uh, the movie of it was very precise in you know, extracting all the interesting stuff uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> from it was. the original story. Yeah. The things that, you know, made it about actual intolerance, a movie about American intolerance, small mm-hmm. town hypocrisies. And it's like, ah, let's just make it about a clown. Yeah. yeah and like, it was, it was like a fun ride, but I'm actually listening to the audiobook of it right now, which is 
about 45 hours long. <laughs> the book is a thousand pages, which I'm reading exactly. now. <laughs> no, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to like carry it around with me. So I'm listening to the audiobook read by Stephen Weber. And it's like, I'm like, man, they missed a lot of the best stuff. But we don't have to talk about Stephen King right now. Maybe. Should we move on to Poltergeist? It's a can of worms. It's a can of worms. <laughs> So Poltergeist, very notably, produced and written by Steven Spielberg. And Spielberg put a lot of his own childhood fears, uh, you know, growing up in the suburbs, into this film. And I, I would be shocked if anybody didn't know the plot of this, but here it is anyway. Small little girl, Carol Ann. Carol Ann Freeling uh, gets sucked into the TV one night uh, <laughs> by poltergeists who are um, just hanging out in her subdivision. Her parents are very upset. They get some ghost hunters in there. They think they've figured it out, and then it turns out, no, the ghosts are still there, still very mad. And, of course, the reason is because the guy who started the development, who dad, Craig T. Nelson, works for, only moved the headstones, and he did not move the bodies. Why he did this, he never says. I assume it's a cheap, a cheaping out sort of a thing. <laughs> uh, Cuesta, Cuesta Verde, which means green slope, or green cost in Spanish. But um, there are a lot of very memorable sort of spooky moments in this where the meat crawls across the counter or the guy, one of the ghost hunter pulls off his face. Zelda Rubenstein just sort of is being weird and little and just like doing her thing. I don't know. We can all do Zelda Rubenstein impressions later. Uh, <laughs> see who wins. I think, and it's also sort of notorious because people say like, oh, Toby Hooper was all coked out. And so Steven Spielberg actually directed this. But I don't think that is, that's sort of like been disproven. And I think there are a lot of shots in this where you can, again, you can tell that this is definitely a Toby Hooper film. There's like, Early on in the film, the little this little canary dies, you know, the canary in the coal mine, and they bury it. And as they're doing this little funeral for the for Tweety, there's a shot of uh, the younger brother in the tree, and he's just sort of hanging in this grotesque tree that scares him at night. And it's shot from this super low angle, and it just sort of like interrupts the action of the of this little improvised funeral. It's like so in line with what he did well in Texas Chainsaw and Eaten Alive in Salem's Lot. But it's like, you know, it's before any scary, scary stuff starts happening. And I also just like love that there is this initial excitement that turns on a dime to just like being very scared because the mom is like, oh, my God, check out what I can do with this chair. Isn't this crazy? Isn't it fun? And then 30 minutes later, she's swimming with the skeletons. That are real skeletons. <laughs> and also, like, there are little moments of humor, like when the older daughter, the house is, like, exploding from all this, like, spiritual energy. And the daughter pulls up in a red Corvette. She went on some date. She gets out of the car, has a giant hickey on her neck, and she says, what is happening? That's <laughs> so funny. The hickey is so pronounced. I know. I love that. Really and again, I feel, like, I feel like that's, like, a Toby Hooper touch. Because there, there are these little moments of, like, weird... Teenage girls want to check this stuff out. They want to see what's happening in terms of sexuality. So, I don't know. The debates over Poltergeist authorship are so long and so tortured, and they'll never, especially now, they're yes. never going to be resolved. Of course so. so, people should just accept that it is a wonderful combination of two different sensibilities. Mm -hmm. I've, I've talked about this movie 
on this podcast before, so I won't talk about it too much. I know you don't want me to, Violet. No, you can't. I don't want to talk about it too <laughs> much it. because I, as I've said, this is actually the movie that I've seen more times than any other movie in history. Mm-hmm. I know the whole thing by heart. And I honestly, also just watching a lot of Spielberg films, it just doesn't really f- totally feel like a Spielberg film exactly. to me. It really doesn't have the same, it has a lot of elements and the way it uses light mm-hmm. in some of the later sequences. Well, there's like and, a shot of it, Dolly's in on the kid as he's looking off screen. That's the mo- that's like a cliche of Spielberg films, right? The, and, but they're not that many of those exactly. in the film, and 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 it's I don't think it's as simple as saying, oh, the really gross stuff is Toby Hooper, and because right. it's not because in that scene, in the famous like face ripping scene, another yeah. scene that my mom talks about a lot, by the way, <laughs> she went to see that, and they said we went to have pizza, and then we saw Poltergeist, and then when that face there, we almost threw up. Um, but in the scene where the where the actor you know is ripping his own face off, which is a, a very shocking scene. For, especially for a PG rated movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, one of the films that helped PG 13 get uh, invented. Um, those are actually Spielberg's hands. That's a great mm-hmm. piece of trivia because it also makes you think, well, it's not like Spielberg, you know, said, this is too disgusting. I'm delicate. No. I'm leaving. <laughs> Spielberg's movies, he just made a of the Lost Ark, which had faces melting and exploding. He loves this sort of gross out, is his exactly. thing. So people try to attribute one thing to Spielberg, one thing to Hooper. I don't think it's that simple. No. I, but I think you're right about the, the interactions of the family, especially the, 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 the portrayal of. Of the parents is these sort of like um, former flower children of the 60s who are trying to integrate into the 80s. I mean, th- that shot of Craig T. Nelson reading that Ronald Reagan biography yeah, yeah. in yeah, bed yeah. while the wife is like rolling a joint is mm-hmm. so fucking funny. And it's yeah. so not something you'd see in a Steven Spielberg film otherwise. Absolutely. Um, I, I feel like there's just so much nuance here. And um, I think it's a great combination. Hey, whatever happened on set, it really worked. I know. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately, I think anybody who works on a movie will say that too. It's like, well, that was awful, but looks great. <laughs> who cares? <laughs> an, un, an undying classic. Yes. Yes. Also, I, I will say that um, rewatching it, because again, I find this happens a lot. Rewatching these films, the Toby Hooper films, is that my mind has reorganized them. And there's actually, they're actually so much longer, but in like a good way that I remember. Because for me, like Poltergeist is so compressed. I mean, I've seen it several times, but it's like, oh, wait, no, there's like, there's a long buildup between this stuff. And the family actually goes through a lot of hell waiting for Carol Ann to come back. And it's sad. And then they decide to stay. Yeah, this, is, this will be my Zelda Rubenstein impression. This house is clean. Exactly. And then they're like, oh, okay. So, All right, chill out. I mean, we'll move out eventually, but let's stay here a few yeah. more nights. And then, of course, that was a big mistake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're, we're going to get upgraded to that house on the hill with the other gravestones. <laughs> I love they end up at the Holiday Inn, though. I know, end. that's very, and they push the TV out. Good button. Perfection. Well, yeah. it's really all about gentrification in a way. Exactly. So, and it's, it's a, and whether or not it was successful, <laughs> who knows? No. Yeah, nobody learned that lesson, unfortunately. <laughs> they never do, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, life force. Time? Okay. It's time. Yay. Because I have to say, when I was when we were getting ready to do this podcast, everyone wanted to talk about life force. <laughs> I thought I would be the only one. Everybody wanted to talk about life force. They were fighting over it, but... Ina, please enlighten people about who don't know. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm going to invite you all to join in because I sort of chose Life Force because I had seen it before quite mm-hmm. a while ago. But also I was too, I didn't have enough uh, courage to start with Texas Chainsaw, <laughs> which was, you know, now I was just kind of like revisiting that movie yeah. really drained the Life Force out of me. <laughs> so, but it was, um, and, but let's see. 
a group of um, <laughs> astronauts Deep breath. <laughs> uh, are exploring Halley's Comet. They see a 150-mile phallus vagina object <laughs> that they explore that has an umbrella on the end of it. And inside they find uh, desiccated bat-like creatures. And then they find a room uh, sort of that has a kind of crystal casket that contains a young woman, a naked young woman and two young men, which they are immediately fascinated with and feeling a little drained because they're so beautiful. Mm -hmm. They take them back into the into the ship, the Churchill, and then... It turns out that she is a vampire. Uh, she's loosed upon London and chaos ensues. <laughs> Sex scenes ensue. It's kind of like a crazy hammer plus giallo movie. And actually, you know, if I was more performative, I think I have to really, really look at my notes, but. It's a movie that has, you know, like, you need Stefan from Saturday Night Live <laughs> to say, like, everything in this movie, Life Force, is a new film, and Life Force has everything, hot vampires, transgender body swapping, desiccation bats, world destruction, an outer space phallus vagina, umbrella, Patrick Stewart, Miss Hammersham, <laughs> martial law, NATO, NASA, plagues. Conspiracy, Energy Columns, Haley's Comet, Swords of Lead, Obsession, Needy Sex, French Kissing, Gay Twin Vampires, Hypnotism, and a score by Henry Mancini. Yes! 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 Yay! Here we go. Yes. And I was watching it on the train on the way here. Oh uh, so lucky people around me for, <laughs> for um, what is her name? Uh, Matilda May, the oh, young yes. lady yes. who was naked in pretty much uh, the first half of the movie. As, yes, as things blasted away as she passes through them and blast away men obsessed. Uh, yeah, I could, yeah. Please join in. Oh my God. Okay. You're like, got it. Okay. That's no, 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 no. You're not, I mean, this is, this is, this is an important part of understanding the appeal of Life Force, the almost vampiric draw of Life Force. Um, how would you put into words what the, Someone who has been sapped by these vampires oh, looks like. Because yeah. for me, that is the total appeal of this film. Mm. Like that's yeah, or part mm. of the huge appeal of this film. Okay, no, you have to. You, I because I don't know. I don't want to. <laughs> okay, characterize, but it's yeah, it's so great. So this woman, naked lady, is going around sucking the life force out of people in London, and th what? <laughs> Or exchanging if, the life force. Or someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. something, recycling, yeah. taking it out, um, mm -hmm. bait and switching. Anyway, they turn into like, people have been, had like come into contact with her. They look like zombies, like totally mm -hmm. gray mottled flesh just pulled really tightly against their bones. So their faces are all just like, it's like their head like grows like two feet. Like they're just <laughs> very elongated faces. And they're like, 
and then they like explode. And they explode into, into, dust. into dust. Yeah, it's so great. It's so great. It is. It is like really my my favorite effect. And then of course the part you mentioned before with like Patrick Stewart getting like possessed mentally by the female vampire, and then like Patrick Stewart it's his greatest role. He's like <laughs> trying to seduce this guy, and he's like, oh hello, and he's like doing like yeah. these. It's, they kiss. Yes, yeah, they, they smooch. <laughs> it's so crazy, but I love that. I love this movie so much. I want to. Yeah, I've seen it several times. It's very. It's, it's never fails to delight. Margaret, you do you have anything to? Not much to add to that. I mean, it's really. But I'm sure there's something. Try harder. Please, <laughs> film that has everything. I don't know. I don't know. Because I was thinking, because you you've expressed your love for the second Exorcist, John Borman's mm-hmm. one with, the, and it's, oh, yeah. this seems very similar to that in some way. Everything but the kitchen sink in a little fashion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I do like that. I wish there was more to the two naked men in the film. Exactly. Yeah. Like there's just so much emphasis on Matilda May, who is mm-hmm. absolutely stunning, but the two men are just sort of left by the wayside and. I, I wanted more of their like vampiric draw to be an emphasis in the film. Yeah, because like I feel like that would have been way more interesting mm-hmm. as a woman, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but maybe they were saving them for like a sequel. They're like, yeah, you know, yeah. they're yeah. like, oh wait, oh no, there's these other two male vampires. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> could happen in Texas because he does at some point, you know, the uh, the captain of the ship he escapes in a capsule, right, and ends up. In Texas, you know, everything's in in London. And so it's kind of like, oh, they're going to shift to Texas. That's actually really great. Mm -hmm. But then it was kind of like next scene is like, well, thank you for coming back to London (laughs) to to talk about your experiences on the uh, on this um, aircraft on the spacecraft. But I thought the movie was also that the movie, with the, despite the fact that it has everything in it, that it really sticks very closely to the vampire genre. Yeah. So that there's coffins and the bats, the kind of the the ghost ship that comes in and everybody has been destroyed, and the um and so the the Draculas kind of escape out into the world. They start to infest other people who become the the vampires. Although the vampire period is only like two hours mm-hmm. um, and then they become zombies right yeah. and then they become zombies <laughs> <laughs> which is great you get both <laughs> you know there's doctors who are who seem to know it all and mm-hmm. are, or may or may not know it all and can also seem to enter and control any situation and this kind of medical versus sort of spiritual um effect or, or argument about what's happening with the vampires that they even talk about vampirism, it makes it feel very English. Oh yeah, too. and uh, and then of course, sort of going over to NATO and to NASA to kind of <laughs> to to balance the English uh, stuffiness, I guess. Yeah, because it was like the Churchill. Of yes, course, the Churchill. Yes, is a, an English American <laughs> co-production of a spaceship, ah, okay. and this yes. is obviously an English American <laughs> co-production of a film. So I like that they they do dip their toe into that and try to balance it out. With Steve Railsback. With Steve yes. Railsback, and they have a big entrance for him. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, they're in the ship and they're looking out at this big object. And it's kind of like, did someone say object? And he pops out of the floor. <laughs> and it's kind of like, who is Steve Railsback? <laughs> now the movie can really begin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is actually, I'm glad you say that because it is like, there are multiple points where that movie could have began but instead mm-hmm. it begins where it began and i'm like i'm so glad it did yeah <laughs> so glad it did. 
cut. Maybe we can move to the next film, which is Invaders from Mars. Mm, also very fun. Yes. yes. Um, it's It seems like this one, Invaders from Mars from 1986, his first release from 1986. It's It seems like maybe a synthesis of this more like campy sensibility of Life mm-hmm. Force and, and, and his some of his earlier horror stuff but this is more like camp for kids <laughs> i mean it's not i sent again pg rated mm-hmm. and it's kind of scary and 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 it, it does get kind of gory at times but i remember watching this one young and thinking that it, it was just like the coolest thing ever yeah. and not really even getting you know kids don't really get camp they don't get those nuances i remember thinking it was just kind of a great movie about <laughs> a kid dealing with outer space creatures so it's a remake of 1953 william cameron menzies film because invasion of the body snatchers in 78 had been a remake of a 50s film too and there were um there was a lot of that there's a lot of like 50s nostalgia in the 80s mm-hmm. so it kind of was of a piece with a lot of things that were being produced then um but instead of doing like what philip kaufman did with invasion of the body snatchers which is a great film um, instead of making this like interesting sobering political update he he makes like the goof possible movie you could imagine with some really great practical effects but they're pretty chintzy at the same time i love looking at them now and obviously every time i see these amazing tactile creatures that they create in these 80s films i wish we were still doing that but this one is so hunter carson is the child star who is who you may remember from Paris, Texas, mm-hmm. a couple of years earlier. His talent didn't exactly grow <laughs> since then. <laughs> it's a couple of years later, oh, and he's really? definitely. Um, <laughs> but it works. He's he's playing kind of like the kid who's trying to convince everyone else that there's a conspiracy. And you know, when kids, little little kid, have to do that in the movie, it, the more they talk, the less convinced you get, and they start to annoy you because they keep hitting the same <laughs> points over and over again. Um, but. <laughs> But the, but otherwise, the movie has this amazing cast of these 70s New American Cinema holdovers. So you have, okay, his father is Timothy Bottoms from The right. Last Picture Show. Right. Karen Black is the sympathetic school teacher. No, and she's the school nurse. The sympathetic school nurse. She's like a sexy nurse at the elementary school. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. She's like, right. oh, gee, let me, let me take your temperature. What's wrong? Phenomenal casting. We can all agree on that. Um, Louise Fletcher from One for the Cuckoo's Nest is the less sympathetic school teacher. That's She's right. the, uh, the villainous one. Lorraine Newman from Saturday Night Live is the mom. <laughs> Bud Court is a NASA scientist. Like it is just the funniest, most amazing cast of, of actors, and and also kind of amazing for um, Timothy Bottoms, who plays the father, who has this kind of transition from being this like gregarious, fun scientist dad to being this. He's basically infected by the aliens and he becomes almost like a pod person. Mm -hmm. And when he's like drained of his personality, he's like, he's kind of, he becomes his last picture show character (laughs) where, you know, how he's just completely blank in that film. And it was like, he's giving me flashbacks. So the, the thing about this movie is it's actually for all of its goofiness. So there's, it's a, it's a crash landing. They're invaders from Mars Mm -hmm. and they take over the small town and everybody one by one becomes this kind of soulless person person and and I, for nefarious ends that aren't completely clear yeah. to, to make to make people all terrible and mm-hmm. blow stuff up but despite the goofiness there are some genuinely scary things that i think are particularly scary for kids mm-hmm. the f- whole first half hour is, is is from the point of view of the kid watching his parents change and i remember thinking that was just terrifying as a kid yeah. um and this so the father is transformed first he wakes up the next morning after the father had gone to inspect this like crash landing and he noticed that his dad is very different. He's not talking the same. He seems a little, um, well, he's less 
jovial to put it mildly. Mm -hmm. Um, But the mom hasn't yet. And so there's this first day where he's almost trying to protect the mom. But then that night he sees the father taking the mother over the hill and he's Mm -hmm. screaming, mom, no, don't go. I mean, this stuff is, it's pretty unsettling regardless of how goofy the movie ultimately gets. But that's the stuff that really sticks with you. And there's actually a really great scene that I thought was maybe a reference back to the meat from Poltergeist, the slithering steak from Poltergeist where uh, Lorraine Newman, after she has been, um, transformed the mom has been transformed into a pod person um, she starts to eat raw meat in the kitchen and she tries to offer it to him and so she's just standing there with this kind of bundle of raw ground beef and she's kind of like sprinkling I think maybe parmesan or ground pepper or something yeah. on it and she's yeah. just nonchalantly because she thinks this is what humans do right she's like would you like some hamburger because that's what people eat. <laughs> Children like hamburgers, and she's just eating this raw meat. Yeah. Meanwhile, the husband has been uh, Timothy Bottoms has been cooking one piece of bacon after another in the in the in on the stovetop, mm-hmm. but burning them to a crisp. Yeah. So the mom is eating raw meat, and the dad is eating overcooked yes, bacon. Yes. It's really funny and really scary at the same time. I mean, there's not too much to say about Invaders from Mars, other than the fact that it shows this like new side of Toby Hooper. He's poking fun at himself. He's poking fun at the genre. He he managed just to get some really great scares in there at the same time that he's kind of taking the piss out of everything that's happening. Louis Fletcher gets eaten by big monsters mm-hmm. and that's always fun. So, um, yeah, I mean, watching it again, I was sort of, um, I mean, back to being a child, but I think there are still a lot of pleasures. It goes on a little too long, I'm yeah. going to have to say. There's like a whole last act with where they bring in the military. It's just like, yeah. right, we don't have to do this over and over and over It's a kid's movie. Again. They have to explain it. But it has this final final note that's just terrifying. I know, I know. And also kind of inexplicable, <laughs> almost kind of like Lynchian, right? Where mm-hmm. it's like the endless cycle of nightmare and you don't really know what the real thing was. Exactly. I think it's sort of a daring ending. It is, yeah. It is that left over from the Menzies film, from the original. I haven't seen the original oh, film, so it's, I actually don't know. It's very, very beautiful. And one of the things about it is that the end part is kind of left open as to whether it was just a nightmarish, you know, or that this thing was going to kind of keep continuing that you can sort out when it's stopping. So oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Cause yeah. So it, there, there is like the sense that, Oh, maybe this whole thing was a dream. And then it, and the then same it just thing repeats. starts to happen yeah. again. Yeah. It's really he interesting. He kind of sees the saucer come uh, land again. So you sort of, it's like dead of night in a way where it starts, where it ends. Regardless, it's it's a very Toby Hooper thing to do. If mm-hmm, I think back yeah. on the way that Salem's Lot ends, Poltergeist has kind of that sense too. Even though they get out of the house, there's a sense of this kind of cycle, you know, making bad decisions around yeah. your family. <laughs> the cycle of well, and Chainsaw Massacre is like they're just still there. Like she yeah. gets away, but they're still there. The, I, I don't feel like his films don't really ever resolve mm-hmm. that much. I think it takes this chainsaw mask. Speaking of too. things <laughs> that don't end. Yeah. <laughs> this podcast. This podcast and the uh, creepy family. Leatherface's parents and, or his dad and his yeah. brother. But <laughs> Yeah, so it's kind of, well, first of all, I'll say that I... I've, had never had a big interest in seeing Texas Chainsaw Massacre too because I liked the what after I finally had enough courage to see uh, the original, I loved it so much that I didn't want to kind of sully it with this other right. version. And I was kind of like, I, you know, I've seen it, I've seen enough. I don't need to continue. But it does have Dennis Hopper in it, um, yeah. and um, you know, and for this podcast, and and just I felt like I needed to beef that up. So <laughs> it's. Kind of continues from where the family left off, but in the 80s. So the right. 
the entrepreneurialism of the family <laughs> starts to uh, be emphasized. So mm-hmm. it's um, Dennis Hopper plays a detective, uh, I guess a detective life figure who's coming to investigate these crimes that are, are now being made more explicit. Yeah. Uh, so the things that you sort of were hearing on the radio are now much more known. The Sawyer family, which I don't think they're called Sawyer anymore necessarily, but they have become much more integrated, I think, into the neighborhood because um, they win the chili contest every year. Right, right, right. And um, a DJ uh, there who is also ends up being the final girl kind of character has been getting these requests to play the audio from the first scene that happens in the movie. Mm-hmm. So... I found the film to be very something sort of venal about it, or or that I realized, oh, it's the eighties. You know, right. it's, I think it's eighty six. Um, it's also eighty six, and it starts out with two you know douchebag yuppies yep. in a in a Mercedes Benz, like encountering, like shooting mailboxes and, and encountering the truck with um with Leatherface and and his brother and a killing, and I think that it. It continues in that way. So at first I didn't find it very appealing, but then thought it was a really interesting way for the film to go. It's Instead of that 60s kind of intensity, it's sort of the commercialism of the 80s really is apparent in the film. The Chainsaw family literally lives underneath Texas history, mm-hmm. you know, in this kind of fun house. And it's been really interesting to hear about these other films and to watch them and start to see these all these different little pieces kind of come up that makes it feel for me more like um, a trajectory of Toby Hooper instead of feeling like these different these separate pieces. I think also the the humor of the film feels much more cynical, I guess, yeah, yeah. and um, and you know the up more gore. More of a sense that it's left open for a sequel if you needed it. So it feels like a, a continuation, but also sort of a remake, but with more money. And so some of the set pieces come up, you know, around the table, stretch. The DJ <laughs> wakes up and is tied to the table, screaming, and Grandpa's brought back. Yes. <laughs> and and uh, the, the brother has is it now a Vietnam vet with a plate in his head that he's constantly scratching with a hanger and eating the flesh. And well, it's I, ambiguous if he's like f- if he went to Nam or if he's just like he always had well, a plate that, in yeah. his head mm-hmm. or it like got buzzed off when he was like trying to kill somebody or right. something. <laughs> so, but he it, like I do, but he has like the Sonny Bono wig, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's always like moving it around and he's right. got his like hippie <laughs> shit on. And it's like, it, I have, again, you have to imagine what this would be like to watch the 80s and just being like, oh my God. <laughs> it wasn't until this morning when I was looking at a little bit of the original and when the Hitchhiker gets into the van, he has a big. Um, mark on his face mm-hmm. um, and in life force there's a character who i realize now is the sawyer he's in the uh, an insane asylum the the um the asylum that patrick stewart is taking care of they have a guy who's a serial killer it wasn't until this morning where i made the connection that that character is popping up in that movie is the same so i'm also wondering but without the um scar yeah, yeah, yeah. so I find the grandpa and and that character so abhorrent that I almost e- don't even uh, like to think about them. Oh, and the yeah. movie is very centered around them. Right. And of course, Leatherface, who feels very different. He feels sort of like an adolescent boy. He's still doing his like chainsaw dance, <laughs> but he 
he's appealing in a different way, but feels much more like a cartoon. Like I feel like it's hard to identify with him as much as I did with the with the first film. But I think that's also makes sense in this in this film that it's it's kind of going outside of the family and is more of a an indication of how the world is at that point in the 80s mm-hmm. which also made me feel a little bit like I kept writing down it's like this feels like white to me in some way um, and I think it is in part because it's more of a, a satire about Texas and mm-hmm. the music and and the sort of punk um, you know, it feels much more placed, um, even though it's being, I think, critical. But the way that it sort of goes away from this family trauma that everybody kind of experiences, not to say that only white people experience 80s <laughs> douchebaggery, but <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but it just it, it just felt a little bit more situated in, in the time. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting you bring up the fact that like the the dad and the brother are so just like gross because one of the things uh, Hooper said that he really wanted to do with the original was like make you understand the monster, mm-hmm. like understand Leatherface. And it's like, you see that in the original, but you really see it here where it's like, oh, Leatherface wants to have a girlfriend. Like, yeah. oh, he gave her like a little face to wear. Oh, but like, and he's doing the best he can. But it is just like very particular type of like fumbling white masculinity <laughs> like just can't figure it out <laughs> like uh I, like if they were to do an update now like uh, i think leatherface would be posting on certain forums kek kekistani sort of like uh, pepe the frog stuff <laughs> he would have a different outlet but, <laughs> perhaps but i did avoid the sequel for a long time too but then i you know watching it i was like just taken aback because it's just completely not the same thing but it is carrying over a lot of what made the original important and the bone handicrafts in this are just out of this world yeah <laughs> just, they're just fabulous they, they've upped their game yes <laughs> yes you can sell them at james mason's shop yeah in salem's <laughs> lot to bring everything together yeah. um i also wanted to throw in um if in case people don't know, Texas Chance of Massacre 2 was a film comment cover story. It's true. In 1986. Ah. Written by L.M. Kit Carson, who yes. is the father of Hunter Carson, mm-hmm. the kid from Invaders from Mars. There we go. Yes. It's actually a really... force connections. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a really good article. I was reading it uh, the yeah. other night. And it just, it, it's, it's, it's idiosyncratically written, but it kind of goes into a lot of what makes the Chainsaw Massacre movie so important and seminal and you know, what it meant to people of the period. And also a bit of his prehistory about mm-hmm. him going to school at, in uh, University of Texas, Austin, mm-hmm. the impetus for the idea for Chainsaw Massacre, which was like literally standing in a hardware store <laughs> and seeing a chainsaw. <laughs> which, which Dennis Hopper Jeffrey does, does yeah. in this. And I think, and I like the Hopper character because he's like, he's not as bad as like Harvey Keitel in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Like in terms of like shitty Southern accent and just like not being believable as a Southerner at all. But... He, it's interesting because he is like, as you say, like a detective, but his family members had mm-hmm. some family who were like killed. And he's so he's just been sort of going all around Texas mm-hmm. following these murders, not thinking to find the connection between the chili contest and the murders. <laughs> but he like his character is actually really interesting in that he's willing to sacrifice stretch to get what to get what he wants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then also just like watching him like try out the different chainsaws is like, I'm sorry, that's like and then the good old boy working the hardware store be like, what are you doing? Oh, okay. All right, I'll bring those up for you. <laughs> that's good. It's very good. I think you can also see 
the influence of um, Rob Zombie, I think, mm-hmm. in this film. You think of original Texas Chainsaw and all the directors that influence, and then we have Texas Chainsaw 2, mm-hmm. and I think you have people like Rob Zombie <laughs> who were <laughs> deeply influenced by this one. Yeah, like The Devil's Rejects really feels like yeah. a piece of that. Is it that maybe that's because that's at the point where everything became more mannered, mannered and um, affected? Mm-hmm. Um, just which is one of the differences between the two chainsaw films it's the first chainsaw film is just such a pure expression of terror i don't think uh, whatever the political implications are there they're they're come at very honestly Mm -hmm. um whereas like you know it often happens with sequels you know you're trying to recapture that flavor and you kind of go too far and the other direction Mm -hmm. but it's interesting why it was the cover of film climate because regardless of the quality of the film the first film had been such an important cultural phenomenon that by the time they even announced a sequel, mm-hmm. it's like, oh my God, I mean, this is obviously one of the major film events of the year. And then yeah. I don't think people were that crazy about it when it actually got released. Mm-hmm. But it's of interest. Yeah. Like and it. it's kind of a, a, a time of sort of self-referential and referring to other films. Like I feel like the the score kind of feels like Hitchcock places. Like there's a playfulness in the movie that seems to be very much of an 80s kind of you know genre borrowing that feels um self-conscious mm. and the colors and the design of it that feels really of that period right because this was like the decade of you know shamelessly cashing in it was a lot of sequels you know you had ghostbusters one and two in a in for that period what was a record amount of time and now i think we're sort of like Obviously, we're very desensitized to it. We're on our third or fourth Spider-Man at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like it's sort of never <laughs> ending. But like for then, it was it was kind of a bold move to kind of go after that, but mm-hmm. also obviously kind of participate in it a little bit too. But also sh- the shameless cashing in on horror movies and horror yes. sequels. There was it was like one a week. There was some, mm-hmm. and I, I I recently watched a, a Siskel and Ebert on YouTube from the eighties where they <laughs> devoted the entire half hour to, to like the shitty amount of horror movies, the shitty amount of shitty horror movies <laughs> that were endlessly being thrown at them. And they, as critics who actually had to watch everything every single week, yeah. you know, they reviewed like five or six movies a week. Mm-hmm. They were really, really upset by it. They were disgusted. <laughs> they were horrified. And and they and I mean, it was interesting to watch because they were taking them to task specifically for violence against women. Like they they like we are sick of sitting here watching movies where women are murdered and mutilated every mm-hmm. week. Please stop making these movies. They are the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Not necessarily the movies we're talking about today, mm-hmm. but 80s horror is very interesting. Yeah. Time period. Yeah, but then they'd be like, oh, here's a film where a woman with giant breasts does something. Two thumbs up. <laughs> She's a great actress. <laughs> She's great. Yeah. So, I, yeah, sorry, I can't help. Not her. all the time. Not not the blue, not the famous Blue Velvet well, no, Oh, yeah. Exactly, yeah. because they just thought it was like part of this trend, right? Ebert, Ebert did. Ebert, Ebert did. Yeah, Ebert hated Blue Velvet. Yeah, the guy that everyone looks up to now. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, he hated just specifically for, he thought that it was a movie that, right. that I don't want to say um, didn't condemn, but. It didn't have the proper critique of violence against women. That's right. Yes. That's right. We'll have to end it there, sadly. I hope you've enjoyed this journey through Toby Hooper. But before we close, uh, as we always do, it would be great if we each went around and talked about a film very briefly that we've seen recently. I'll go first. I saw this because it's October. Shocktober. I saw a film called Impossible Horror by Justin DeClue. A filmmaker based in Toronto. It's uh, kind of like a little eldritch horror sort of Lovecraftian thing where this girl, uh, you know, she's been through a bad breakup. 
um, she starts hearing this scream and she goes to figure out what it is. And then she starts finding these clues and she finds this other girl who is also trying to track this scream. And it's the process of unfolding this mystery around because only certain people can hear the scream and sort of finding these clues, which, you know, physically manifest at certain points at night. And it's like, it's very, I think just visually, I think it's very beautifully realized for something that uh, doesn't have a huge budget. And there are just like really great fight scenes and great use of camera work in those fight scenes that you really don't see in, you know, second time or first time filmmaking. So I quite enjoyed it. And um, I don't know, I think it's on Blu-ray. I'm not sure. I watched this Australian horror, sort of a horror film called Lake Mungo. Has anyone seen this? From 2008. I guess it had been lost for a while, but now it's available to stream in places. It's a, so it's a found footage-ish movie, or at least it's, I would say it's more of like a, a, like a faux documentary style horror movie. Um, But this one really works. It's just, it's about a family dealing with the loss of, um, it's teenage daughter. She had, she drowns. She had drowned in a lake, and it starts as kind of like a Talking Heads documentary with some footage and decon- kind of reconstructing what happened. And then as it develops, you realize it's not quite what you thought it was, and it keeps kind of changing. And it's it's very interesting, and it's actually very much about just like these people and this family and sadness. Mm-hmm. And it's also very scary. Actually, that made me think of a film I watched again not too long ago called Thirst which is an Australian horror slash sci-fi movie that I really am very fond of. I forget the director's name, though. But it focuses on uh, a woman who's supposedly a descendant of the Countess Elizabeth Bathory. So this group of, they're like vampires, I guess, but they're a very high-class cultish group want to take her under their wing and want to elevate her within their ranks but she wants to have none of it and so they're how to how to I, how to explain this film i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> um they just bewilder her over and over again and until she comes over to their side but they're they're not traditional vampires in any way they uh have like a what they call a blood bank of lower class people that they take their blood from and they drink it. And God, I don't know where I'm going with this film. It just popped into my head. But it's called Thirst. Check it out. It's a great October film. I don't really have a horror film to talk about, although I'm going to see Suspira in... Um uh, the AFI Silver Theater on Monday, so I'm excited about that to have a little horror in Washington. But I did inspect a film the other day, a 35-millimeter type film of Whitney Houston singing the Star-Spangled Banner, mm-hmm. and it's been really interesting, so we're hoping to be able to show it at the museum, but it's really fascinating to look at it now in, in relation to everything that's been going on with Taking a Knee, Colin Kaepernick, and um, the whole kind of blending of militarism, whether or not social activism is appropriate in the NFL's brand and labor and all of that stuff. And looking back at Whitney at this time where she's at the top of her game, Mm -hmm. literally in game, Mm -hmm. uh, giving this performance and how fascinating that is. It's just, it's like a small thing. You can see it on YouTube, but 
I think it'll be really exciting to be able to see that again within this uh, environment. Yeah. So. Yeah. Have you seen the documentary about her? I haven't seen it yet, so okay. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, I heard yeah. it's really good. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. See Turn It On, China On Film 2000 through 2017, a documentary film festival curated by Ai Weiwei and Wang Fen. Don't miss We the Workers on November 3rd, featuring a Q&A with the director Huang Wenhai, activist Zhang Xinyan, and Suzanne Nossel of PEN America. Tickets at guggenheim.org slash turniton.